Linux Out Loud is firing up our microphones, connecting those headphones, and searching the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banner friendly, the conversation, well, somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week, we are spouting off about getting companies to contribute to the open source ecosystem. Let's get into episode 15. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. With me today is Nate, the OpenSUSE expert of the X Digital Network, and Wendy, the photographer extraordinaire, with her own little camera corner every time she does hardware addicts. What's going on, guys? That was the nicest intro you've ever given me. I don't know what to say. Are you feeling okay? No, nothing's wrong, Nate. <laughs> Are you sick? I think he's just tired. Matt's been working way too many hours, and he just doesn't have the energy to rib you yet. Give it some time. No, that can't be it. There's something wrong. No, when he's right, it's just a lot of work. Okay. All right. Oh, the ribbing will happen as we go through the show, I'm sure. Just not at the moment. <laughs> it's coming. You haven't had enough coffee yet this morning. The engine's not quite running yet. Not quite warmed up. No, not quite warmed up yet. We'll get there. But Nate, what have you been doing with your sound system, apparently? Well, I've officially moved everything over to Pipewire. I've kind of dabbled in it throughout the last year or so with some success, but now I've moved everything over to Pipewire. So I'm using Easy Effects instead of Pulse Effects. Everything is now just completely all Pipewired up, and I'm very happy with the results. There was some issues, I think, on the OpenSUSE side with like some of the plumbing on the underside. Keneal told me that there was some work being done with the, I think it was called plumbing or something like some module that basically routes stuff around. And apparently everything has been tidied up just as so that Pipewire works just as well as Pulse did for my usage. I do notice that there's a bit of a reduced latency, like when using my Bluetooth headset and so forth, which is nice. I do appreciate that very much. And the great part is if I'm adding or removing an audio device, I use Bluetooth quite a bit. I don't have the issues of the sound basically kind of stopping and having to like refresh the browser page or whatever. So it seems like whatever they've done, Pipewire is working great now in OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, and I'm happily using the easy effects as opposed to pulse effects because last week when we recorded pulse effects decided it wasn't going to work anymore and i figured well i'm sure it's not getting any more love anymore so it's time to move on i've happily moved on with success to pipewire and i am appreciative of all the work that's been put into it yeah speaking as someone who is fully on pipewire because uh we'll get into why but i totally understand where you're coming from there is a lot of stuff that i do like about pipewire like you mentioned the bluetooth stuff it's cleaner the way to handle audio is just it's a cleaner way of doing it for all of pulse's issues it was at least manageable this is just a cleaner more streamlined way of managing though it's really been a strength Though, Nate, I will say, Pipewire is 100% working because we can still hear you. Oh, okay. There we go. Matt's starting to wake up. <laughs> yeah, he is. Here it comes. I've actually been using Pipewire for quite a while. It came into Manjaro. I, I can't even remember when, when I've actually started been using it. And for the most part, like I didn't really notice that much of a difference. Everything just works so seamlessly as it did before. So I haven't had any complaints with it over the course of my use case of it. I also don't do a lot with any software controls of the audio. It just comes into the computer from my XLR microphone into the box that takes the signal and uses it as a USB input. Like it's really pretty simple. I don't do any of the processing wise with noise gates and the like. 
That all comes in at the very, very end when I do the final editing. I mean, for the most part, my house is somewhat more quiet. Okay, we do have times where I'm like, okay, time out. Even last episode, I'm like, hey, I have to go make sure a kid didn't just die, which they didn't. But, you know, that stuff happens. Sometimes that gets brought up into the audio here. And we'll have trucks, big trucks that'll drive right by the house. And of course, that's usually when I'm talking. So that's harder to get rid of anyway in general. But I think Pulse is a nice addition in my limited understanding of how it works to Linux in general. I think the important thing for me was that I didn't lose anything with the upgrade. I said early on that there were some issues of the sound like just not coming out. I have to like refresh web page where if I moved sound device or added a sound device. And so as long as I'm not losing anything, I'm totally happy with the upgrades. I'm gaining something in the respect that I now have reduced latency in the audio, which is very nice. And I'm hoping that, you know, as I start playing more with some other audio applications, I downloaded something called, well, that's not important. Anyway, I want to play with like some MIDI stuff. I want to see how well that does. Most people who do anything with MIDI and computers tend to use, or MIDI, I should say MIDI and Linux, tend to use the Jack. So I'm wondering if Pipewire truly is just as low latency as Jack. Curious to see how that all works. I would like to do more stuff with audio. So... You've let me be the guinea pig, especially when it comes to certain homeschool co-op adventures. I think I'll let you be the guinea pig for this and let me know how it works out. I'm great at being a guinea pig. Sometimes I just don't tell about my failures. (laughs) (laughs) I understand that. I will this time. So speaking of failures, Wendy, you're working on the Twelfth Night play? I'm kidding. That was a terrible segue, but what's this Twelfth Night play? (laughs) It actually wasn't a failure. It was a great success, though I am still absolutely exhausted. Our Tuesday co-op every two years does a Shakespeare class. This year there was Shakespeareance, so that was for the younger kids. It's more learning how some of it was written, learning the poetry side of it. It's essentially an English class that uses Shakespeare. And first semester, they did a 15-minute version. The younger class did a 15-minute version of Romeo and Juliet. That is probably one of the most serious plays he has. And the kids did a great job not only rewriting this 15-minute play in plain English, but it was the funniest Romeo and Juliet of my entire life. It's probably the funniest one I'll ever see. Absolutely loved it. Second semester, the younger group also does a 15-minute play in plain English, and the older group does the full Shakespeare play. This year was Twelfth Night, which that one is a comedy anyway. I would have to say it's probably one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. Absolutely fantastic. And on top of that, both plays were super funny. But here I am as the person who volunteers for everything. I think It's probably one of the things that annoys my husband because he's like, I know what all you're doing. And then why are you volunteering for stuff? I come home and he's like, why did you do that? And I'm like, well, I I don't know, but I did. So now I guess I got to go do it. And one of the things I volunteered for was to be the producer of Twelfth Night for the older kids. So it wasn't even the one that my daughter was in. Though I'm part of the co-op, so I'm helping. That included helping to coordinate people. And on top of that, I ran lights for the play. And I took pictures 
for kind of our memorabilia poster that they do every year. So I did images for that. Plus I recorded the play. Now this was a little bit tricky. I needed my daughter's help with that side of things. So I have, of course, my DSLR camera, but it's not great for recording long format stuff. So this was not only the younger kids play, but it was the older kids play. I wanted all of it. Now I have an Atomos Ninja Inferno. And essentially what that is, it's a piece of hardware that's meant to take the input from the DSLR and turn it into a higher quality recording than most DSLRs can do, at least definitely my DSLR. It doesn't have raw format. It's pretty compressed in how it does it. And it has much more limited space to save that. So I've got my Atomos Ninja set up and I'm not actually setting things to record from the camera. But the downside is that window, that live feed turns off after about 10-ish minutes, it goes to sleep. You know, you're not doing anything, you're not recording. And if I was actually using it for recording, it would turn off every 30 minutes. So how we worked around this was, I turned on my DSLR, I turned on the Ninja, and then about every five to eight minutes, if you just move the focus button, it keeps that awake and there's no break in the recording. So I was able to do that during the younger kids play, but I had my daughter doing that during the older kids play. I handed her my watch so she could set the timer on my watch every so often, hit the button. I made sure that it was locked down like super, super tight on my tripod so the head wasn't moving anywhere. We got the video, got the video from both nights. I am not overly happy with the audio, just speaking about audio, but the auditorium we're in, it's a really old school building. I could tell you about the horror stories of running lights in this building because there was no actual light panel, but I will refrain. We are a nonprofit organization. We got to use the school for free. So be thankful for the good things that come with it. And in a way you can be thankful for the irritation too, because it helps you to know what you don't like. Exactly. Absolutely. Helps you know what you don't like. If you always have things you like, it's hard to know like why you like those things until you have that thing that you don't like. Yes, to be thankful for them. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. For sure. But the sound, you know, the sound isn't great because I didn't have direct feed into my recording box itself. The older kids were mic'd, but I do need to spend some time, of course, cleaning up the images, cleaning up some of the audio and cutting out just some basic parts of the video itself, mostly that time just before it was starting or whatnot. I think there's a couple times where scene changes didn't happen very quickly and I can just cut that out from the recorded version because it doesn't need to be in there for that prospect. But I'm overall really happy with it. I had all kinds of hardware adventures this week and now I'm going to have all kinds of Linux editing adventures as I get through all of that stuff that's on my to-do list. Here comes Kitty and Live. Like, it's not the program I'm the most comfortable with, but I'm going to have to spend quite a bit of time in there probably tomorrow. Kitty and Live, I would say it's become easier to use as of late because now it's very quick to do what I would call like the cheap transitions, like a crossfade very easily, very nicely, and very quickly nice. without having to go dig through any menus. It's like kind of the default. The same way you can fade the audio tracks, you can also fade the video. You can actually very easily crossfade into the other track just keep in mind that the track that is above video-wise, always that video is above. It works great. I do that actually for all my Linux Saloon edits. Instead of doing like a jump cut, it's essentially a jump cut with like a just slight fade. I think it's a little bit less jarring 
and you'd notice less all the cuts I do in there, I would say. Yeah, and for the most part, for me, my cuts shouldn't be too awfully jarring because the lights are already down, so it'll be harder to see that there's a switch between the two. My biggest concern is how the overall audio is going to come out. One of the nice things is, even though it's a movie file, if I open that up in Audacity or Tenacity, it'll pull that audio file from the video I can clean it up, not doing any cuts, just do some cleanup stuff. I can do that cleanup in a dedicated audio processing software and then bring that audio file back together in KDN Live. So that's where I will be doing those two things. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see. It's not going to be a hard cut. The video side of this is probably the most simple of it, but I am concerned about how to get the very best audio possible using not the greatest audio. I'm so used to like this show where I have a separate track for each and every one of us. It's a mic directly into the recording software. And so it's really hard to put out something that I wouldn't want to put out as a podcast. And I just have to tell myself, knock it off. You're only giving this to families. Like, that's the only people that it's for. So the families have a record of the play. The kids can go back and watch it later. Heck, today is my oldest daughter's birthday, and that's what she's requested to watch tonight because, I mean, of course, it's funny. And the kid who played Malvolio did an amazing job. Like, I still laugh thinking about it. It's just for us. It's just for fun. I think that's fantastic. Probably a cool birthday gift, you could say. Yeah, it'll be fun. My husband didn't stick around for the full play. He just came and watched my daughter in the 15 minute and then headed out with all of our children and didn't stay for the whole thing. So it'll be his first watch of the full play. And I have a feeling we're going to be re-seeing this version a lot because it was my daughter's favorite version of the play ever. That's awesome. Home videos or home movies are way better today than they were, you know, back in the 80s. You don't have all the artifacting that VHS tapes would have and that whining sound that you'd hear the tape playing picked up by the microphone. As much as I love old technology. Wait, did Nate just compliment new technology? He did. Every once in a while, he comes through and likes new technology. I mean, to be fair, he does have a 3D printer. He does have a newer computer. It just looks old on the outside. He's not opposed to new technology. I did hit my head this morning. Yes, but for him, that's a necessary (laughs) evil. Whereas the older stuff, it's like Lennox, it's his happy place. It's when he actually compliments new technology, I find it intriguingly odd okay this is one of those moments where like we're getting off track in the conversation we're not keeping it quite on topic but vhs tapes they're novel they're great package for the kids to handle movies way better than dvds to put the videos in the player i would even say better than a fire stick or smart tv however the quality does stink once you watch dvd quality even the 480p dvd quality vhs tapes really do stink but it's okay for movies. But for home movies, they were even worse. And here's the thing about the Ninja, is it gives you not necessarily DVD quality with audio, but it does give you DVD quality with the video side of it. So it may not sound great, but it'll think sheer look good. Well, probably actually better than DVD quality because you're probably actually Blu-ray quality, I would think, 1080p. I would think you're probably shooting it or even 720p. I'm shooting at 1080 just because that is what my older DSLR body can handle. But if we look at the overall file size, I'm really, really curious now. I mean, these files ended up being 
absolutely huge. You're shooting Blu-ray quality. You're doing way better than DVD quality, so. Probably. Well, I mean, I will yeah. eventually be compressed down. Right. They're not going to get it in downloadable form. The files are just going to be way too big. It would take a million years. Okay, not a million years. That's an extreme over-exaggeration. But it would take forever, even in its compressed format, for me to send it to them over the internet. So what we're going to end up doing is once I'm done with it, then we're just going to put it on USB sticks and give it to the kids. And so then they have a hard copy of it that they can use. It doesn't matter what their internet speeds are. They'll still have a copy of the show. That's super cool. It's a very inexpensive distribution. Also way cheaper than VHS tapes because those were expensive back in the day too, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. We can pick up a five gig USB drive because that's really all it needs to be. Okay, no, five gigs won't work because I guess the first half of the show is right around 85 gigs, but we can still pick up a smaller USB drive for fairly cheap, especially once it's all compressed into the final version and it really shouldn't be too bad price-wise to make sure everybody has a copy of it who wants one. Yeah, I mean, that's super cool. I'd be interested in even seeing the video too. I'm just because I'm curious how it all turned out. I don't know if that's possible. It might be possible. I might be able to upload it to YouTube. So of course, that'll compress it even more. But upload it there and just set it to unlisted or private so that I can send you a link. Probably unlisted because if it's private, even if I send you a link, you won't be able to see it. But send it right. to you that way so you'll be able to see it. But I'm definitely not going to show it to the masses as I'm pretty sure all of these people don't want their children all over the internet and I don't have permission to do that. But just with a couple friends, they'd be able to see it. All of you listeners won't be able to see it, which is sad because like I said, Malvolio was amazing. Absolutely amazing. To go on a more new technical level, Matt, you finally got your hands on a new GPU. This is so awesome. How is it working? Do you love it? Yeah, it was one of those, it was time to upgrade the GPU. For those that don't know, prior GPU was a Vega 64. I love the card, great card. However, starting to show its age, at least for what I do specifically. So I was able to find a 3000 series GPU for still over MSRP, but not unreasonable over msrp it was about because they were supposed to go for 400 i got it for five so it's still more than i wanted to spend but it's still within not nearly as bad price range as some of the other ones have been where when we're talking like a 3070 at one point was like 900 dollars. i took the hit on the 25 percent markup basically and went with it so i got a 3060 ti which is uh Eight gigs of, I think it's GDDR6, if I remember, or five or six. I don't remember exactly which one it is. Either way, overall, it's been fairly seamless transition. The one nice thing was I was able to reconfigure my entire system because the desktop, which was an, a full AMD system, a dual boot, I guess. Each drive had its own boot drive, so it didn't really matter. It still had a Windows drive and it still had a Linux drive. And well, now it's just a Linux system. Because I was like, well, if I'm going to get rid of the GPU and might as well just go all out and reorganize everything. So I did a fresh nuke and pave of everything. Rearranged stuff. So originally I got an NVMe drive for the system after I bought the system and built it and figured it and all the other stuff. 
the NVMe drive is finally the boot drive. The SSD and the hard drive that I have are all the secondary storage options now, whereas opposed before it was Windows was on the NVMe, Garuda was on the SSD, and then I had a storage drive which managing things is a little complicated at that. So yeah, it's been fun. Performance has been good. I haven't had any issues. I've been testing out games and stuff. Obviously, like I said, I went with Garuda because of all the gamery stuff. And it's in my use case, it's the quickest just set up and go kind of just are. But for me, that's been the biggest thing. The drivers all work. Ironically, some of the drivers even detect the RTX stuff so for like the games and stuff. So like one game I was playing mm. didn't detect RTX on my laptop, which has a 3050 Ti. Yeah, on the desktop, which is solely just the NVIDIA card, totally detects the RTX stuff. So most people will want to know if I'm using the potentially the open source or am I using the proprietary proprietary blobs content creator NVENC. Need I say more? Probably not. I haven't used the NVENC, but is it truly that big of a performance boost over just using the VAPPI or whatever it is that AMD and Intel have? It's quality. The difference is in the quality. It's not necessarily just the performance stuff, which does matter, but generically, it's just the overall quality is better. Speaking from my own personal experience on an AMD card, there just seemed to be more artifacting. It was less clean on the encoding and stuff when you're doing direct window capture of like the desktop and that kind of stuff it's less clean so it makes for a not a terrible end result but it's not as good as it could be okay just speaking for experience now if you're taxing the gpu and you're using nvenc yeah then okay even that two or three percent that nvenc might hit as far as like what it's using it has its own hardware encoders and decoders and all the other stuff so it doesn't hit on the gpu as much You'll probably notice it then, but for me, if I'm playing a game on this particular system, I'm probably not streaming it. I'm probably streaming it from a laptop to a capture card using NVENC, then streaming it. If I'm just doing local though, it's it far cleaner, less issues from my perspective. Again, everyone's going to have a different preference on that. Can you tell me what the difference is between the TI and the not TI? I tried looking it up and I couldn't find a clear answer. And I figured this would be a good time to ask someone who knows better. So the short version is, it's going to sound weird when I say the 60 series, but when you get into whatever NVIDIA puts in the 60 line, whether it's anywhere from like a 460 from like 10 generations ago to the 3060 now, it's always been their middle line cards. The TI is for better or worse, it's a higher version of the base model. So like the 3060 regular has 12 gigs of RAM. Cool. Most people are like, oh, more space can do more. But on the same note, it only runs on, a, I think it's 192 bit interface, the baseline. So that means less throughput. So less communication speed. Whereas the TI runs on 256, less memory. Pro, con, take your pick, which one you want. I could have gone a 3060. They're far cheaper, but on the same note, I wanted the faster throughput on my system. It's a trade-off kind of once you hit that middle system. So like, yeah, I don't have as much RAM, but I got a faster throughput, like a faster core clock and kind of that kind of stuff. It really all depends on what you're looking for, honestly. If you want to go on the cheaper end, for most people, the baseline 3060 would be fine. Okay, that's interesting. I don't fully understand the trade-offs and why they do that, but hey, you know, I'm not in marketing nor my hardware engineer but it's interesting nonetheless as an example you would think a card with more vram would potentially be able to do more you're not wrong because you obviously have more ram to work with but the constraint is going to be on your throughput on the communication interface how much it can pump through on calculations and that kind of stuff so when you have the faster bit interface it gives you a bigger pipeline 
therefore you get a generically better speed boost i guess would be the best way to put it for communication so you get from the calculations on the cpu and gpu therefore you generically would get better frame rates and that kind of stuff less distance traveled or faster speed traveled basically that's usually what most people will care about that's very cool not to mention that there's also probably like the higher core clocks and something might have like more CUDA cores or, you know, whatever other NVIDIA marketing stuff goes into it too. There is that, I'm not going to lie. I figured a lot of it's marketing mumbo jumbo. I didn't put a whole lot of thought into it. Most of it can be until you jump around into different GPUs and stuff and like different bit interfaces and stuff. It's like going from a 128-bit to a 256-bit GPU is just, it's different. Even that 64-bit jump from 192 to 256, you'll notice. And just the speed of textures loading and just kind of that kind of stuff. It's stuff you'll notice, but if you're not looking for it, you might not notice it. But that's only with like the real AAA type games though, right? Like the real graphic intense games. The kind of games that you play. The kind of games I play, I probably (laughs) wouldn't notice a difference. Is that fair? The types of games you play, Nate, you could basically play on a emulation device on your cell phone. A potato? Yeah, probably. Not entirely. Although Descent. Descent's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty graphic intense game. You know, it was 23 years ago. You've played a few more modern <laughs> games. I mean, come on. That Portal one, uh, I forget what it's called. Splitgate. Would I notice a difference in Splitgate? Or is it Spitgate? I can't remember. <laughs> it's Splitgate. That one's hard to tell because like that's not the most for you that's demanding, but like when you're talking demanding, that's not demanding, if that makes sense. Okay. Well, it didn't seem to make any of my machines work real hard. Where low, medium, and high, you know, like all the graphical stuff would matter. It changes like particle effects and that kind of stuff, but like the overall core experience and how you play the game and generic like art style of the game isn't gonna change all that much just based off those graphical settings. It changes, but it's like more atmospheric y kind of stuff that you'll notice like particle effects and maybe some character shadows and yada you know, insert nine thousand graphic options here kind of stuff. So like Legend of Zelda, a link to the past for the Super Nintendo, would I notice a difference there? <laughs> anyway, moving on. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your team can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of size, whether you're a team of one to a team of 1,000 people. DigitalOcean helps your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. As a listener of Linux Out Loud and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, you can get started with your $100 credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. NVIDIA has recently open sourced a portion of their drivers, specifically the kernel modules and stuff. It's an out of source contribution. 
that allows the community to kind of like have fun. I think certain things froze over when most people heard this announcement because it kind of came along with like a bombshell of things that have been happening this year when it comes to Lennox. I wanted to kind of talk about the bigger thing that this means. When you play nice with companies, eventually they contribute. Now, some people will be the conspiracy theorists and like, oh, this is because the NVIDIA source code was stolen and I'm not looking at it that way. Like, I'm not looking at it as the conspiracy theorist. I'm looking at it as like, this is great for the open source ecosystem. And the way you go about it isn't bashing companies and suing them. You work with them, ironically. It's interesting to see the different approaches that's been taken over the course of Linux, especially as the desktop itself has become more and more usable. Some people are yelling at companies or very mean about the fact, why don't you have open source drivers? And I know for sure that NVIDIA has definitely gotten some of that, but we've seen through other interactions that it still may take time, but the better course is to slowly pull them into the mix to say that you would like to have open source versions of their drivers on the platform but not do it in a mean vicious how dare you kind of way and while yes it has taken a lot of time to reach this part of the goal and now don't get super, super excited because this doesn't mean that all of your NVIDIA graphics are going to work absolutely perfect in your game. That's really not what they did here. From my understanding, it is more on the server side that they have done this open source release for, but it's definitely a step in the right direction and it was done in a manner that leaves both sides happy with that interaction? You know, it makes me think, this is quite some time ago, years ago, when I first started listening to podcasts about Linux, I don't remember the name of the organization, but one was a lot more militant and forcing businesses to, if they made a mistake in using an open source license, they would kind of try and use the hammer on them. It drove corporations, it drove companies away from Linux, away from open source. And now it seems like today, there's a bit more of a welcoming attitude to the open source. And I feel like NVIDIA is taking that step. They see how well it's worked for AMD and Intel with their graphics drivers. They're like, oh, well, the water must be warm and not shark infested. So maybe we'll, let's go ahead and dip our toes in there and make sure we don't lose it. It seems like a lot of good is happening because of the change in attitude toward open source by NVIDIA. So I want to make one point. Most people will be like, oh, wow, they open source some of their GPU stuff. In fairness to NVIDIA, now not a lot of people use them, but a lot of the Tegra stuff that NVIDIA made, the system on a chip ARM system that they have, the thing that basically powers the Nintendo Switch as an example, they've worked with open source as far as the drivers and a lot of that stuff for Tegra. We can't say that they haven't been poking at the open source bear, as it were, because they really have been. They've just been doing it with kind of more fringe edge case products. But this is a much bigger thing. Now, like you mentioned, Wendy, this is very much done for the data center and compute more than it is for any other reason. It's a business decision. And Lord and behold, guess what? Companies that do open source stuff, they're not altruistic. They're doing it for a business reason. There can be a bunch of other, you know, oh, we do it for the community stuff reasons. No fooling. Really, there's a commercial, a money-making reason for it? Who would have thought? Huh, weird. So people have to eat. Is that what you're saying? I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying that at the end <laughs> of the day, we hear this whole, like, people open source things and do things to scratch their own itch. 
these companies are doing these things to quote unquote scratch their own itch and that's generically make money. And I'm not saying there's not maybe some community aspect that doesn't go into it or some thought process around that aspect. But generically, at the end of the day, these guys are for profit. You think that, well, they're doing it for selfish motivations. Well, why did X programmer make X application? Because they wanted to for them. That's a selfish application that they made. So it's no different. The only thing I take issue with, I love the fact that NVIDIA did this. I think it's good for the overall ecosystem, the Novu project. You know, this has some good long-term implications for them as far as being able to have certain features and functions like 3D acceleration and different controllers over the hardware that they're not currently able to do. I think since like the 700 series GPUs, things like clock speeds and that kind of stuff, they haven't been able to do since like the 700 series. It's great to see. Some of the community will take issue that NVIDIA is requiring a CLA for any code contributions that do get upstreamed, but the way that they're doing this, it makes sense for CLA. So if you don't like it, don't contribute. These are the terms that they want for contribution. If you don't want to accept them, you don't have to contribute. That's the beauty of open source. That's the beauty of the way this works. I think I'm just glad to see that when you play nice, good results happen eventually. They always happen as soon as we want them to, but they do happen. This just goes to show it. Yeah, I think this is really good news just overall because people have been playing nice and they're more welcoming now. And I didn't actually know about that, that Tigra, Tigra, whatever you call it for the Nintendo Switch had any open source or anything to it. I just kind of ignored it. But I know that there's the Android, a lot of Android devices use that same chipset. This is all sounding like really great news from my perspective. Now, the question I have, Matt, you do have NVIDIA cards. So this doesn't change anything for you, for your use cases, does it? Not really. For me, I'm still probably going to use the proprietary blobs because NVIDIA has not changed the fact that their driver is still like, their overall driver is still proprietary. Because what the proprietary driver does is more firmware and a lot of the other NVENC and a lot of that stuff, that's still not open source. So as a content creator, that's stuff I, I'm going to care about more. So yeah, it, it, like it's still a proprietary blob all the way for me. What this does potentially mean is, does that mean we get better support for things like graphic switching? Do we get the more seamless graphic switching that you would see in Windows as opposed to the log out, log back in mentality that we currently have? for GPUs or is that going to get fixed with Wayland and where does this lead for that kind of stuff as a creator is where I'm more interested in because you know we keep hearing Wayland's the future and all this other stuff well maybe this move will help speed that process along now that certain modules and stuff are open source so maybe those things will play nicely together as opposed to not so much right now that's what I care about seeing as far as a content perspective, though. No, it doesn't change, really. Constantly been more of a NVIDIA guy just because like somebody who would cling to a Windows or a Mac system, there's that one thing to run with. And that for me is NVENC. Some people oh, use the open source stuff for AMD or Intel. It's not the same. Will you use it? I don't know how to explain it other than that. You have to use it in order to understand it. I've tried a VA, API or whatever it is. And then you got the X264 rendering. But have you tried it lately? Yes, I have. Okay. The way I would rank the way those renderings work, you have number one is still NVENC. Number two is AMD. Then you have Intel. 
Now that could change when Intel actually does release a consumer card to consumers, but in the way it currently works, Intel's third, AMD's second, Nvidia's first, and the first to second margin is fairly wide. I can't personally speak for experience when it comes to that because I have had Nvidia cards in the past, but never really good ones. Like the low, low end ones that came with a pre-built system, I've never bought like a nicer Nvidia card. So I haven't been able to test that out for myself. I have noticed in rendering files, sometimes there being like a glitch or a hiccup in the finished product. Now I don't know if that has something directly to do with AMD or the drivers that I'm using or the drivers that I'm not using. So I would be kind of curious from a personal standpoint to put that side by side. It's just something I don't have experience in so I can't speak for myself. For me I used NVIDIA some time ago. This is like from 2007 to about 2017, my main machine had an NVIDIA GPU in it. My issue was the experience with NVIDIA on Linux degraded over time. I know things have changed now, but I was so fed up with how difficult it was to just keep the NVIDIA GPU working completely properly actually forced me over to using AMD and Intel. I've never been happier. I'm sure there's some really cool features that I'm missing out on, like the NVENC and some the whiz bang a tree that you use, Matt. But I really like the fact that I can just install Linux distribution now and bam, I'm done. No other things I have to do to get all the hardware stuff working properly. And so for me, I'm hoping that the inclusion of what NVIDIA is doing with their driver, a portion of their driver, that that smooth some of the experience, especially if you're using a rolling distribution, or for me, especially since I'm using OpenSUSE to Tumbleweed, you know, maybe there's a potential for a good NVIDIA experience in the future. Uh, but for right now, I think I'm happy with a smooth installation process and the fact that everything just works right out of the box graphically. Have you noticed any issues when it comes to rendering the videos for Linux Saloon? Nope, I haven't. Although I don't record them at 1080p. I record them at like 720, slightly lower, because I record at the same rate that I can actually stream it reliably. It's not super high resolution, so I don't see any a lot of degradation there. And I render it on both my Intel machine and on my AMD machine seems to render out just fine anyway I go. I do notice it does depend on what file container I put it in. If I rendered MP4s on Caden Live, I seem to have a better result if I do the, the WebM or Web, WebM, I think. That seems to have a lot more artifacting. Now I have no idea after this discussion if it's because I'm using AMD that it's doing that or if I use Intel, maybe it'd be better. I have no idea now. I'm all kinds of confused. No, you're talking the VP9, or, or, which is WebM. That's just a, it's one that wants to be used, but not a lot of things use the right encoder for it. So therefore the end result is not always ideal from a hardware perspective, like MP4 and a lot of those, they have the decoder on the hardware. So it makes it for a cleaner experience. A lot of the other ones are generically uh, for VP9 or WebM. They're either hit or miss on their support from a hardware perspective if they're on like the GPU portion of the decoder. They might not be there, so it might be software end of rendering, which if you've ever used the Intel software rendering for like OBS, it's not always the most stellar. That'll generally determine your experience as far as your renders or whether or not they're good or bad. And Matt, you've mentioned that you have better quality with NVENC. Is that better quality in the recording itself or is that better quality in the render or is that a bit of both? Uh, so for me, it's a bit of both. AMD, again, I'm only speaking from personal experience. 
AMD, when you use VAPI, regardless of whether or not it was the Windows equivalent or the Linux version, you noticed a hit more on the GPU than you would on NVAC. You would notice the rendering happening on the GPU more than you do with something like NVAC. Again, this is just my personal experience. So I would find things would tend to get a little wonky video, like the codec would crash out. And I'm like, I'm not playing like the most graphically intense game either. So like the codec would just constantly crash out sometimes. And it's like, you're overloading at, I'm like, I'm overloading a 2D game at 1080p 60. Okay. <laughs> Stuff like that, where if you were doing like software rendering, it, it's almost the same deal. You'll occasionally get like, oh, codec overloaded. So, or encoding overloaded when you do Intel's X264 rendering for capture and you would get one frame then another then another and it's just the experience is just different i find that the fps counter on like obs tends to be far more accurate on nvank than on AMD cards. Just speaking from experience, if it's using 10% of the GPU or, you know, whatever, generically, that's my older system that does that because it's an older card. Right. And that's kind of what it comes down to in general is what is your experience with these different cards and these different drivers and your use cases for them? Like I said, I'd be curious to test some of that out just a little bit more to see the difference having between the two. My most experience with an NVIDIA card is in my daughter's laptop. We've talked about the struggles of that for a long time. Her laptop currently has Fedora on it and I once again can't get the NVIDIA card to be used. It's so frustrating. That's one place that I could actually do some tests. Of course, it wouldn't be the same because it wouldn't be a one-to-one with the hardware that I use in my regular machine, but it would be one way to test some of that. And just because it is so hard to get working in the first place means that, yeah, that hasn't happened yet. So yay for hopefully having at least eventually better desktop laptop drivers. That makes that so much easier. Remember the days before GPUs? Life was so much easier. Remember the graphics in the days before GPUs? Remember when 640 by 400 was like the ultimate in resolution? Yeah. Nate, here's your abacus. (laughs) (laughs) I need one of those. I I bet Nate would be a whiz with an abacus. I mean, I played with them a lot when I was a kid, you know, moving those things side to side. Yeah. I wasn't always allowed to play on my Commodore 64. My parents are mean. But you could play with your abacus. Anyway, let's move on. Overall, I think this is a great move for NVIDIA to do. It helps the overall ecosystem. It's great to see other companies end up participating in the open source ecosystem and helping drive that forward, regardless of their reasons. But what do you guys think? You know, let us know. Comment, email us. You guys know all the fun places to do that. Specifically, you can yell at me and know how I'm wrong on Twitter if you really want to. Well. Get your feedback on that. I basically just want to hear you say, well, Matt's wrong. Nate, you do that every episode. Tell you that you're wrong? Yes. (laughs) Not every episode, just most episodes. As many episodes, nope, I'm going to be good. Man, you are such a loser. You're watching yourself all the time today. Come on, Matt. Come on, Matt. This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords, and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. 
Say you want that premium account that starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Belt Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com TUX to get started for free. If you're like me though, you want to show your appreciation for this awesome open source project by signing up for that premium edition, especially since it starts at just $10 a year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. So while apparently NVIDIA and other companies like it are trying to rebuild its perception of how it's perceived in the open source community, Nate, you're working on rebuilding something else. Oh, I did it already. It was a surprise IT emergency, a PF Sense box that I set up for my church. It decided that it would stop PF Sensing, I guess. I should have done a lot of things differently. One, I probably should have not used a used hard drive in the machine I set it up to begin with. I also probably should have done some backups at some point in time in there. And I probably really should have just thrown an SSD right out of the gate. Anyway, so I've corrected all of my faults and everything. Reset up the PFSense box on an SSD instead of the three and a half inch spinning rust hard drive that was in there and got back up and running. I was only occupied doing this for about three hours and everything is good to go except for the printer because I don't have access to the printer to get it back on the network or whatever. All the access points are all set and everything else. Luckily, the way I set up the access points, they automatically reconnected the PFSense box without any problems. Yes, I spent a lot of time fixing a mistake, something that could have been prevented. You know, because I like to overload my plate with tasks, things tend to degrade on me and I have to do some kind of an emergency reparative action to get things back up and going. So that was a bit of an adventure yesterday for about three hours or so. Whatever do you mean? I would never overload myself with tasks. You don't either. No, no, we don't do that. No, never. No, <laughs> I spend most of my day sitting on the recliner watching old reruns of uh, the Golden Girls, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, heck, who doesn't love Rose and Ma? Hey, Betty White. Exactly. Don't get me wrong. Golden Girls are awesome, but it's not like I have time to... Sit and watch Golden Girls? Or the Goldbergs, if you want to do something a little bit newer. I mean, why would you want to do something newer, really? I mean, retro is your thing, right? So reruns of Golden Girls fits. But that's actually why the show Goldbergs fits. Whenever I do catch an episode of that, that's actually really quite enjoyable because it is... Because it's new with a retro yes, feel? Yes, yeah. You can see like an Apple II in the background or sometimes like a... There you go. It's like your imposter. Mm -hmm, yeah. Another perfect fit. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, for some reason, I see you more as like Tim Taylor. More like, as more of a what? Home Improvement. Oh, mm. yeah. Yes. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I've broken many of things because I've McGilligorilla'd it thinking, well, I'll just push a little bit harder or I'll just <laughs> add more power. Whatever. Yeah. I, I recently twisted a bit. I mean, I don't know how I bent a drill bit, but I did because I just thought I'd, I'd just give a little more push attached to a hole saw. So it was kind of a more of a pricey oops. I mean, it wasn't, you know, sending a dishwasher through the ceiling or anything like that. That may have happened to Tim Taylor, but <laughs> it was nonetheless, I probably just should have backed off and not have been impatient. You've never over-improved something so much that it destroys it, but you have the keen ability, just like Magneto and my oldest son, to break tools. You know, I'm going to say the tools broke themselves because there's no way that they should have broken so easily, is what I think anyway. Great. Now Magneto's going to hear this as he's going to use that excuse too. <laughs> they build them to fail. In fairness to Magneto, <laughs> it's not just tools though that break anything remotely related to that he touches breaks. Technology tools. Not 
everything. But yeah, yeah, he does have a bad running record with technology. Anything with the motor. It was kind of funny. There was something that started working on my daughter's laptop the other day. And my husband was giving her crap. Like he was reaching out like he was going to touch her laptop. Oh, I can stop that. It was kind of funny. It's kind of a running joke around the house too, not just on the network. Well, Wendy, when I'm (laughs) not breaking things... And uh, you're not breaking things. You move things around the house. And I understand you moved your printer. You found a home for it. A happy place. Well, I haven't found a permanent home for it, but I have found a home for it. I think it was a couple episodes ago. You jokingly said something about put it in your kitchen. Well, it's really not too far off. Right now it's sitting in my dining room. I have kind of a rolling table thing that's got a granite top on it. And that is currently where my 3D printer is sitting. Is it the best place for it? Absolutely not. It's right in the middle where people are walking back and forth. Though it really hasn't seemed to mess with the prints too much. Not a permanent home. But I have been able to do some longer prints. One which took 36 hours. And it didn't disrupt our sleep. So that part is absolutely awesome. No one will stay there. But just kind of an update from last week's conversation where, yes, it's no longer in my room. No, it hasn't made it to the spare room yet. That's going to take more work. Yes, I'm going to build a case for it. Still figuring out exactly how I want to do that. So it's temporary home, not in my room, is in the dining room. Which the advantage of this is... My younger kids who want to see how the print is going can pull out a chair from the table, stand on it and look. Whereas before they were coming into my room and like jumping, trying to see and shaking the entire floor. And I'm like, okay, so this is a little bit better as far as that goes. I would like to get it out of my dining room as soon as possible. So hopefully I will have some sort of other solution by the time we chat next week. One of the biggest lessons I've learned over the course of the prints this last week is how you set up the print makes a big difference. And I'm not talking the settings in your cutter. I'm talking about how you set the print up on the printing surface. One of the things that got printed this week is actually a mounting box for the for the HTC Vive Hub. So there are several different cords that come from the computer into the hub plus a power cord. And then all of those cords are on the headset and go into the hub as well. There's some sort of processing that happens in that hub between the two sets of wires. And so you have to have in order to make this work. Anyway... When I printed this the first time, I laid it so the large flat piece, the part that would mount to the bottom of the desk, underside a table, something like that, I laid that flat and let it print so it's kind of curved. And the curve still came out really, really nice. It built those up fairly cleanly. The problem was now those edges were way too brittle. Because the plane in which it was laying down new plastic was now in a way that those edges could just snap right off. I reprinted it where it built it up. So it was one of the edges, either the back or the front edge, was laying face down on my print surface and it built that up. So now those curved edges where there is going to be some flexion has the grain of the plastic, has the grain of the print going the opposite direction. I also increased the infill 
quite a bit on this. I wanted it to be more sturdy and so far it definitely seems way better. I don't have it mounted yet just because I found some of the cords aren't quite long enough to mount it where I wanted it to. So I either need to swap out some different cords from, from the computer or decide where I'm going to mount it in a different place. But that is probably one of the biggest lessons that I have learned this week in 3D printing. That's one of those lessons I learned some time ago. And it's a lesson I think I'm still learning because sometimes I think a print will print better a certain direction. Then after I printed, I realized I was very wrong. Right. I don't like printing supports. Very rarely will I print supports. Sometimes they're hard to take off or, or they get stuck to the part itself. And then you have like a bad surface. And I just don't like them very much. Once you kind of get your head wrapped around or understand the part and you realize like which are critical surfaces, which are not, that helps the final print be a lot better. I'm still working that out. There's only been two prints that we've had to use supports for. Uh, one was that dragon skull for my daughter and I was really surprised how well and cleanly that came off. We had a lot of breakage on the tips of the horns. I think I mentioned that last week just because of the way that they were printed, right? Those really fine points were layered up in the same way. Just that breakage, that easy breakage point was how those tips were built on. And a lot of those have come off. But to be fair, the print still looks absolutely amazing. The only issue we've had as far as getting some of those supports off were the sword that goes through. So the back side of it, it built up the square supports you know they're those are really easy to get off but then it'll add kind of a rough layer of squiggle I can't remember what it calls it down before it does the actual finer build and on the back side of her dragon or on the back side of her sword that's been extremely difficult to get off I've had to take and use a scraper and scrape that to get it broke loose and then sand it down a print I recently did for my husband, it also needed support. And for the most part, they came off incredibly easy, but in one particular area, and thankfully it's a spot that doesn't really matter as far as looks go, I'm having a hard time getting that transition between the square supports and that squiggly plastic. Like I said, I need to figure out what it's called. I know if I pulled up Prusa, it would tell me right now. But to get that off has been the biggest issue. And some of it just takes time like working at it. I've been working on it with my fingernail over the course of recording this show. And I even broke this part like trying to get it off. And it's another one of those that I'm learning 3D printing can be really, really awesome. But if you have a narrow spot and it's going with the grain of the print, those parts are so, so delicate. How do you reinforce that? How do you help prevent from breakage when there is no other direction to print something? I don't have a good answer. And I don't either. Maybe somebody in the community does. Maybe somebody's found a way to figure it out. Maybe there's a way to like pause the print part of the way through and do something to help reinforce it. I don't know. It's, I think 3D printing is awesome and each building technique has its positives and negatives and I see this as being one of the biggest negatives of 3D printing is certain areas are just going to be weaker because of that layering of the plastic and the direction in which it's layered 
on the print itself. Yeah, I've lost so many prints because of like issues like that, where they start to pull up from the print bed or something happens and it shifts or been all kinds of things that have just, yeah, it's really hard. I think playing with like temperatures, having it enclosed helps, but playing with like temperatures, sometimes I'll increase the temperature of it or increase the build plate temperature. Sometimes things like that can help. Or, you know, I've actually gone in and changed the actual design of the part a little bit to be easier to print. Although that can also be a challenge too, because of an artistic thing, you know, you have like a big head on a little body, you're going to have that weak spot that is the neck, which ironically is a weak spot for humans too. And it's, so it's really hard there. I printed off like a little monkey thing for my daughter. And then as I'm taking it off the print surface, the head breaks off. And I'm like, that's okay. I'll glue it. So I glued it and it's fine. I mean, she lost We had that same issue with the squid I printed for my son. I went to take it off the print bed and it kind of had a wider place on the bottom. It kind of narrowed up and then went through the rest of the bell for the squid. And I went to try and pull it off thinking, oh, I can just grab it here and pop it. No, that was a bad idea because that narrower area where the plastic just wasn't as sturdy. Yeah, it cracked there. So I've totally seen that in my very, very limited time using my 3D printer already. Maybe people should make things not with such tiny connecting. Or, you know, actually, if you increase your infill, that does help too. So it does use more plastic. And I think that's probably one of the solutions I'm going to have to go with. On this, I should have used more infill because where it broke as I was trying to clean off that flat part at the top is one mm -hmm. of the supports for the mounting bracket broke off as I was trying to scratch off that layering that was used between the supports. Because as you can see, this is something that absolutely had to have supports when it was printed. I printed it upside down when the print was done. So I think I will go ahead and print them again. One with trying to fix, not fix, but change the print a little bit itself. Still keep that mounting bracket the same. Anyway, getting back on track, it is now time for game of the week. Take it away, Matt. Thanks, Wendy. You're welcome. So yeah, the game this week actually will be more up Nate's alley. So this game is available on GOG. It's also available on Steam, but I would generically probably go with the GOG version because they actually make sure it works with modern systems anyway, because uh, it requires DOSBox and all the other fun stuff. It does run on Windows 95 emulation. This game is a Spycraft, the, ironically, the great game. It's an FMV game. I played this back when I was a kid. I loved FMV, like adventure games like this. It gave you that feel of being part of a movie. And I think that was something I, I've always enjoyed. I still enjoy those kind of games. Been a big fan of like the David Cage games, which are very interactive movies. This game is basically if you've played or remember the spy thrillers from the early 90s, it's basically that in a video game. You got hammy, cheesy acting from typical FMV games. There's no way to really accurately and a good way to describe this game. But if you grew up or in that time frame or have played some even more of the modern new games that are uh, kind of in this ilk of FMV games, then you will definitely enjoy this. That's a spy game. You go through and you're trying to unravel political intrigue. Mm. The memory is pretty intense, but it requires. I don't know if I have a system that can handle that. Yeah, I know. A lot of memory requirements on that. 512 megabytes of RAM. I remember when that used to be a lot. Yeah, back a long, long time ago. And now all you have to do is open up Chrome and boom, there you go. You don't even have to open Chrome. You just have to open anything with Electron. <laughs> oh, that's true. Very, very true. Though in fairness, if you're complaining about memory at this point, you know, we've got systems that can take up to like 64 gigs. Get some memory. I'm just saying. <laughs> if you can upgrade. If you can't, then I get it. 
But anyway, so Nate, this might be up your alley. Yeah, it's a cool looking game for sure. I like this stuff. I mean, even like the um, like your object library, target image and stuff, just the, the graphics around that has a very old school browser look to it, that late 90s feel. Mm-hmm. I think it's just great. The message and archive buttons look so 90s. It reminds me of BEOS. BOS. Yep, yep, I can see that. And the thing is, like, you can generically pick this game up for like six bucks. It's not usually all that expensive either. It does have different branching paths. That has always been kind of one of those things with the FMV games. Is they were one of the first kind of game series that really are genres that have a consequence theme to them. You know, different fail states of a game. So like, you can die, and you got to go back and figure out why you died. That was always something that I liked. You made the wrong choice or that kind of stuff. Like more choices actually had that consequence. Whereas mm-hmm. before these type of games, it was more gameplay resulted in you dying. This was you made a conscious choice in not necessarily a gameplay way. Like you made a conscious choice to do or say something to somebody that didn't quite work up in your favor. I've always enjoyed these kind of games. So just as a reminder, on June 20th at 9 a.m. to June 21st at 9 a.m., I will be doing a GameSphere live stream for Cure, which is Citizens United in Research for Epilepsy. And the goal will be $1,500. And the nice thing is, if we do reach that goal, we will have a community game night of the game that everybody has been trying to get me to play for months among us as I groan. Yay! And we all cheer. Awesome. Woohoo! All right. I'm excited. You got to get to the goal raise first. So if you want to see me begrudgingly play Among Us, make sure to be there on June 20th at 9 a.m. and join in on the fun. We'll be having multiplayer games, single player games. I'm sure Maru Gaspari will be there to poke fun at me throughout the day. You better be. Data already does that anyway. So, And we might even see Ryan and Michael be terrible at some video games too. <laughs> I would say we would see Nate be terrible at video games. We already know he's terrible, so it's fine. I can remove all doubt of how terrible I am. True. Perfect. Sounds like a party. Can't wait to see it. So make sure you guys are there. We'll be having some votes and stuff for some of the multiplayer games that will be there. We will also be contributing $50 to a open source project of the community's choice from a list of stuff that's kind of related contextually to gaming and helping make the gaming experience on Linux better. Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents into today's topic. Hit the discourse forums, drop us a line under this video, or you can use the contact form visiting us at tuxdigital.com contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, you can see the links at the bottom of the show description. You can find other great shows like Hardware Addicts, Gamesphere, Linux Saloon, Destination Linux, and many more shows and shows to come at tuxdigital.com. You can show love for your favorite podcasts and shows on the network by visiting the Text Digital merch store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I Pause My Game to Be Here t-shirt, which, not gonna lie, totally my favorite. As always, we thank you for joining us, and we'll be back next week with another awesome suit of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banner friendly, conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. Mm-hmm.